0: So I found this animation online. It speaks to the struggles of every software design architect. It's called The Death Star Architect Speaks Out. And if you're not familiar with the first released Star Wars film, now retitled Episode IV, A New Hope, a young Luke Skywalker a farm boy, from Tatooine, manages to find and exploit a significant flaw in the design of the Empire's Death Star, a massive structure capable of destroying entire planets, such as the homeworld of Princess Leia. So, in this case, there was a single point of failure to the Death Star, an exhaust port, which, in terms of the plot, appears to be a simplistic excuse for the hero to defeat the enemy. In the animation I found online, the architect vigorously defends his design against the one which, while juggling every other possible vulnerability, he simply didn't account for. And why should he? In this threat modeling, the vulnerability that the exhaust port represented to the Death Star was very much a a one-in-a-million chance.
1: Maybe the exhaust port isn't to blame because the shot
0: was literally not possible unless you had magic powers. Maybe if someone would have told me to account for space wizards when designing the exhaust ports, we would still have a Death Star. Maybe you should be blaming Darth Vader, who couldn't shoot down some farm boy. Maybe you should all stop blaming the exhaust port, which actually did its fucking job. The animation drives home the point that you can't always account for everything when you are threat modeling. It also establishes the value of having a common language. Here, many of us have already seen Star Wars A New Hope. And if not, we at least understand the references to the Death Star as part of our culture. Having a common framework around vulnerabilities, around threats, well, it helps us to understand the information security landscape much, much better. So, are there things that every engineer should know from watching Star Wars? In a moment, we'll find out. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about Star Wars. Literally, how the rebellion fighting the empire has echoes in how we approach and mitigate information security threats. In 1977, a low-budget film opened with very modest expectations. By the end of the week, it would become the number one film at the box office, and it would be labeled a blockbuster because of the long lines of people waiting to see it. A few years later, it would become the highest-grossing film of all time. Star Wars, the original film, went on to add several more sequels and prequels, and to those coming of age at that time, It represents part of our cultural identity, with new episodic shows on Disney Plus and new films coming in the future. So, given this cultural anchor, it seems that we might want to ground the discussion around threat landscapes and threat modeling, which is exactly
1: what my guest has done in his new book. I'm Adam Shostak, and I think for the podcast today, the the most relevant title is I'm an author.
0: For more than 20 years, Adam has contributed in different capacities in information security. I've seen him speak at Black Hat and DEF CON and other security conferences. Oddly, we hadn't met until now. Over the years, Adam has contributed to how we think about and categorize threats, such as helping to create the CVEs that we use today, or even participating in Microsoft's software development lifecycle, all of which we'll get into more in a minute. He's also the author of the acclaimed Threat Modeling, Designing for Security, and Adam's back with a new book called Threats, What Every Engineer
1: Should Learn About from Star Wars. I'm super excited about it. Because it solves a problem that I've seen since someone asked me a question. And it was a very simple question. I was doing some training and he came up to me and he said, I'm not a security person. Where do I go to learn about these threats that we're talking about as part of your training? And I thought about it and I thought about it. (laughs) And I said, "There's eventually I just stumbled my way along to there's no good place to learn about all of these. And so that's really the genesis of it.
0: This latest book is structured along the lines of Stride, a threat framework which is derived from a 1999 paper from inside Microsoft called Threats to Our Products. If you haven't heard of Stride before, Adam explains.
1: So, strides a mnemonic that helps us remember important threats. And it stands for spoofing, tampering, repudiation, information disclosure, denial of service, and elevation of privilege. And these are threats that apply to every technological system in various ways. They, they interact with the things we're putting together, and so that's why they're the basis of the book. There's also a clever conceit throughout his book
0: star wars but i assure you this isn't some last minute marketing shtick this was intentional
1: it came about actually in 2005. i was i was blogging i was annoyed at something and sort of offhandedly i said i'm gonna use star wars to explain this classic paper and computer security by salzer and schroeder and i didn't really think about it i made you know, it was blogging in 2005. I said, I'm going to do this. And then I started doing it. And I got through four or five of the eight principles. And then I hit like this, this dry spell where I couldn't figure out what to do. And I persevered. I worked through it. And people responded really well to this mix of...
0: I should note that Adam has limited himself to the first three released films in the Star Wars saga that are known today as Episodes 4, 5, and 6. But for anyone going back to the day, these were the original Star Wars trilogy films. But there have been dozens of books about Star Wars and security as a topic, although I dare say they haven't been successful in weaving the two together as Adam.
1: And the way I think about the secret sauce is... You can't just pour Star Wars onto the thing you're doing and have it work. Or you can't pour Harry Potter or Star Trek or anything else. Because if you do that, you end up with this disjointed bit where you're trying to make a Star Trek joke or you're trying to make a Lord of the Rings joke. And it's tortured and people see it. And so what I've learned in doing this little shtick of I'm going to use Star Wars to explain this thing is you can only do it if your metaphor, your lesson really derives cleanly from the point in the movie to the point in the technology. And if you do that, it comes together nicely. To give you an idea how
0: Adam has played out the Star Wars theme throughout his book, in the first chapter, he asks how Princess Leia or even R2-D2 would really know that it's Obi-Wan Kenobi and not that they're being spoofed. Yep, deep questions, which I myself was not asking
1: when I first saw the first Star Wars film. The explanation, the back, the, the question of authentication is a really important one, right? The first thing we do as we use a computer now or a website is we log in. And how does that work? Why does that work? And what's happening there is in the movie, there's no real explanation, but I've, I've retconned. I've retconned an explanation in, which is that the same technology that R2 uses to... Um, Record the hologram can be used to scan a bone structure and build a 3D model, because R2 can build 3D models of things. And so we can use that as a tie to the idea of biometrics, as a way of authenticating a human being to a computer. And so we can build on that and say, what are the other ways of authenticating a human being to a computer, right? We have things that we know about, logins, and we can ask the question of, how does Princess Leia know that r knows Ben Kenobi? And so we can build these things and we can have fun while doing it. And Adam's book has another example
0: from the introduction where the Star Wars motif is baked into the organic structure of the book. He says that the force is a property of all living things, and security is a property of technological systems. I like that, because like the force can be used for both good and evil, obviously security systems
1: can be used in both ways as well. The promise of the book is what every engineer needs to learn from star wars and we're we're living in a time where the things that we build technologically have ethical implications and one of the big challenges that i faced in writing the book is how deeply do i play or do i delve into those ethical concerns that i think engineers ought to be working on and I made the choice, and it's an engineering choice, to not go very deep into ethics because it would have made the book twice as long. And I wanted it. You know, people people give me a hard time occasionally, and that's well-intentioned, but they give me a hard time about how long my threat modeling book is. Um, And so I made the choice to keep this one short and not touch on the ethics. But you're right. The Force has a light side and a dark side. The technologies we use have a light side and a dark side. And I want every engineer, maybe this will be the next book, it will, will be ethical dilemmas from Star Wars, <laughs> although Star Wars doesn't have a lot of ethical dilemmas in it, really.
0: Adam's book is about threat modeling. It's interesting how you know with the physical world there can be an explicit list of threats. Consider your home. You know there's a risk from flooding, from fire, etc. And knowing that risk, you can then secure yourself against those risks, mitigating them in ways and so forth. But in information security, that's not always true. In fact, it's much weaker because you're up against human adversaries who are capable of adapting and learning and really changing.
1: So I think the distinction is not just adversaries, because people break into other people's homes for various reasons. Um, For me, the biggest distinction is how new this all is. We've only been building computers for something like 75 years, and so the ways in which they work are new to us. We don't have the deep grounded perspective. You know, when I got started, I could touch every computer that I was responsible for, and now I can't. And that makes a difference in its security in ways that we're, you know, there's the bumper sticker of the cloud is just somebody else's computer, and it's half true, but it it touches on this deeper truth, which is our mental models are changing and we have these different perspectives, right? The person who wrote that bumper sticker it's like, oh, it's just someone else's computer. And they're implicitly challenging you by saying, stop thinking the cloud is different. Who's right, who's wrong matters to me less than what are the nuances? What do I need to think about when I put my stuff into somebody's cloud How do I deal with that from a security perspective? Because now I can't go yell at Jim in IT operations about what's going on. But Alice, who's running the cloud system, is way better at keeping things operational and patched than Jim ever was. Where does that leave us? And how do we get away from the Alice or Jim or whoever it is to... What matters from a security perspective? And I think that's a challenge that we all face as we're doing our jobs now. When we threat model, there's this continuum from threats that are obvious once we look at them or once we look for them, to threats that are really subtle. So the problem with the Death Star is actually pretty obvious. There's no blowout panels in case there's a reactor problem. Um, And they present this as this subtle flaw. But hey, look at it. The Rebellion finds it in like two minutes after the Millennium Falcon shows up. We could get into the whole thing about the Empire does not have a blameless culture in which people can raise problems so they can be addressed.
0: Again, perhaps something not all audiences were thinking back in the 1970s when the original Star Wars films came out. Perhaps Adam's next book could be entitled, What Ethical Workplaces Can Learn from Star
1: Wars? That's that's the ethical book. See, see, it's just so rich. There's so many things I want to say. But let me go to the idea of subtle flaws versus obvious ones, because that's where your question was. As a security expert, I really like finding the unique flaw, the exciting flaw, the one that gets me a talk at Black Hat or something else. Right? I feel proud of that work but the attacker doesn't care. The attacker will send you a document, will send you an executable in a zip file titled "layoff notices.xls.exe, and the exe gets hidden and you click on it and you're popped. The attack, and we need to balance our desire to do exciting work with our desire to do engineering work and really find those all of those sorts of threats and focus on the things that are easy to do at the same time as we're getting joy out of our work, we're taking pride in our work, we're feeling like we're making a contribution. I want to give credit to
0: Microsoft. Particularly when I was back at ZDNet, when the whole idea of Patch Tuesday first came out, I would read those early patch bulletins and I would call out the blame that I remember them having, where they would dismiss this buffer overflow or potential denial of service because it's highly unlikely that you would ever have that in your system because it wouldn't be configured that way, would it? Microsoft stopped doing that and has since matured. But back then, those bulletins always sounded to me like the architect of the Death Star. It's like, well, in these extreme circumstances, maybe this could
1: happen. You know, there are times when it's useful to say extreme circumstances. For example, if, you've turned off the default security setting and you're using this application compatibility setting, and Microsoft has statistics on how many people use those, and you've set this thing to be seven instead of four million, then this is way more likely to impact you. And I think that those technologically grounded uh caveats those those in these circumstances which are under your control this is what's going to this is why you should be more or less concerned i think that's very powerful when we get into and i'm going to figure out how the bad person thinks it's way harder to do it well it's way harder to predict you know trying to think of a good non-political example. I'm just going to go to Star Wars here. It's way harder to think that Darth Vader is going to trap the Rebellion in this way because he's aware that Luke Skywalker is his son. It, it, I mean, the whole plot of the, of Jedi is a little bit convoluted and they've written these explanations which actually make it all come together. But you don't know that as you're watching it and you don't need to know it to enjoy the movie but one of the things I do love about Star Wars is there's actually these layers of richness and as I was writing the book gave me an excuse to geek out and go really deep into a lot of the Star Wars things and I, I try not to mention too many of them because as you said People have watched the original three movies, and that's where I I layer the book. But if you wanna go into what an attacker is going to do, what's going to motivate them, why are they gonna take these actions, and then say, oh, you'll be fine, the Empire isn't going to come for your small moon, or they're Ewoks, they don't even have gunpowder, what damage can they do? That, that trips us up. And so I really like focusing on the known capabilities rather than the motivation as we think about it.
0: Okay, leaving the Death Star aside for the moment, Adam has been involved in other projects such as the Common Vulnerabilities and Exploits, or CVE, He helped create that and continues to work with them on improving it. What I like about the CVEs is that it's no longer one size fits all. There's the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, or CVSS, which allows industries to plug in their own risks and arrive at their own risk scores.
1: One of the things that people always forget about CVSS is that it has an environmental term to the equation. I, there's a there's a formal name for it which I'm I'm not remembering right now, but that this is how it can impact you. This is how it will impact your business is really something that requires understanding how your business has the technology deployed. And one of the challenges that we face is that our deployments are so complex, they're so sprawling, they're so evolved that often nobody has all of it to hand. And we think about that and people say things like, it would be such a big project to map out how all our technology works here. And to get every single detail into a single diagram, yep, that diagram will be an eye chart, but the value of modeling is that we can draw some pretty simple pictures, and with those pictures get an idea, and we can say, you know, this is in its own VPC, we're isolating it, we've got a firewall in front of it, we're using reproducible build so we can just redeploy it quickly. That sort of thing that we can sketch on a whiteboard is a really powerful contributor to intelligent conversations. And the way that I like to think about threat modeling starts with that conversation about what are we working on and continues to what can go wrong. And so CVSS, CVEs can play in there. And people want to bring in all of these important nuances, and sometimes we lose the, the forest for the trees. Exactly.
0: And I think this is where we're going when we talk about threat modeling, that you really can't have a conversation with various stakeholders unless you're using a common language framework to define the problem and the possible solutions. We talk about the real threat landscape, and it becomes overwhelming. But if you focus on overflows today or whatever niche thing you want to get into, now it has a bucket for you to discuss in very common
1: terms. Yeah. And... And that we can point at, so that we develop this common understanding, is valuable to our brains. And and it's one of the tricks that I use, it's my Jedi mind trick for the book, if you will, is I point to the Star Wars thing to focus people's attention, and then I tell a story about it. And doing that over and over again forms the core of the book. And also, I use stride as this core of the book, right? It's... It, this book took a long time to write because, while it looks very simple on the surface, it, getting the structure to work and getting the storytelling to work really—you know—this this was my Jedi training, if you will. This was my time on Dagobah. Was being yelled at by an editor a lot. Thank you, Jim. Uh, thank you, Kelly. They they both yelled at me in wonderful ways, and I learned to make it go. But we undervalue simplicity in technology. When I first heard this, I had a
0: negative reaction. It seems to me that simple is too simple to be secure. Much like a system is too complex, it's probably going to have security problems as well. Adam had a good response to that.
1: I believe it was Sir Tony Hoare, H-O-A-R-E, who in his in his Turing lecture said there were two ways to make a system secure. One way is to make it so simple anyone can understand it, and the other is to make it so complicated that no one can. If you don't understand the security—and it's so frequent that I see this— someone will show up and they will just throw this barrage of things at you, and in doing so, They're like, oh, you didn't understand X, that the reason the Excel calendar on a Mac starts on a different day than the calendar on Windows is this weird niche fact about leap years, right? There's this weird story. I don't even remember the details. And since you don't understand that, you clearly don't understand the problem, so I win. And it's BS, it's also really common in technology for us to value that ability to create this complex structure. But the simplest system, the the only I don't I don't believe that a complex system is actually ever made secure um, if the details are only understood by one person or only one person can claim an understanding, then what the reverse engineer, what the pen tester does, is they hone in on places where you and I, as engineers in building the system, didn't have a common understanding of what our threat model was, of what our system model was. And so you assume that I'm validating that the input is only ASCII characters, And I assume that you're validating that, the attacker is like, huh, I'm, I'm looking back and forth on the podcast here, it doesn't do a lot of good, but I'm looking side to side, nobody's validating this prop that this function over here expects the input to have. It gets broken, and the complexity was the enemy of security. Early in the book, in the introduction, Adam
0: mentions Bruce Schneier and how he had an aside or a blog about how he had gone to the NSA and said, so where is your book of threats? Staying with this idea of the richness of every environment and everything being different, Adam tackles that question a little
1: bit differently in his book by imposing a framework on the threats. Completeness versus accessibility. There used to be, the German equivalent of the NSA used to have this catalog of threats and it was something like 6,000 pages long. It only existed in PDF form and they stopped maintaining it because it was inaccessible right who's going to read a 6,000 page document ever you you look at the index you search it and you hope that things you hope that the words you're using are the search terms in the book so there there were threats that I wanted to put in that I left out because you have to get that balance and I'm sure I'm sure that people will disagree with my balance and that's okay right that's just part of Um, There is no perfect book, um, but I hope to have written a useful book.
0: So we talked about threats and the need to categorize it for a common language. I want to stress how Adam has considered the Star Wars aspect of his own work. And underlying Star Wars is, of course,
1: Joseph Campbell's A Hero's Journey. Since a lot of your podcast is about people's journeys, I want to talk for a moment, if I may, about the hero's journey, which is one of those structures George Lucas has talked about how he used Joseph Campbell's work on the hero's journey. And one of the early phases in the hero's journey is that the hero is forced to leave home and go on this journey. And it's challenging, and they meet, all these problems along the way no one wants to go on a hero's journey there's this there's this little instant where his aunt and uncle have been murdered and Luke says there's nothing for me here anymore and then he's off your listeners don't want that right they don't want their house to be burned down their family murdered they want to go on with their daily lives and so, this the the fun of this book is an invitation to learn these things without having that deep challenge. Um, you you can pick this book up, you can read a chapter at a time, and so so your journey as an engineer, as a security person, challenges will come at you, and my hope is that this book will give you some tools to deal with those challenges in a way that's accessible, that's fun, that's educational without being a slog. So I've addressed this in other podcast episodes. Are engineers
0: and developers really being taught security these days? Perhaps not. I think job security is what they're being taught and they're being taught how to ship code quickly
1: and and it's it's hard right and look number 1 everyone's overworked number 2 everyone's having layoffs and when there are layoffs training budgets go first right it it is better to keep people employed and not train them than to train them and then lay them off so i think people need more training on security And I'm aware that organizations think they need training on ethics of AI, on accessibility, on reliability, on performance, on all of these aspects of how we build our systems. And I think that one of the grand challenges which faces us as we build these technological systems is how we build them in ways that really serve all of us and i think over the last few years we've seen a lot of we've built systems that serve our business as well and leave a lot of people hurting and i think that that's going to be a big challenge for the next 20 years is how we find those balance how we if we will bring balance to the force
0: so how do we entice the developers and engineers to learn security Certainly, you know, integrating the Star Wars metaphor into the whole thing is very helpful because that's really the audience that we're going after. But how do you get those engineers to come to that level
1: if security is not something they're being tasked with? You know, this is this is an important question. And I think that we all of us respond to the incentives placed before us. We are seeing... You know, in in the last few days, I've seen headlines about fines in the hundreds of millions of dollars for not taking privacy into account in the systems that we're building. The new Omnibus Spending Act contains new powers for the Food and Drug Administration to mandate, excuse me, to mandate cybersecurity for new medical devices. I think we're going, we are at an inflection point where we're going to see more and more regulation. That regulation will lead to executives caring about what we're building. And executives caring will give engineers either the space to care about things they've thought were important that weren't getting attention, or just a notice that they have to start paying attention. And I think one of the big Challenges for the design of these regulations is how we enable innovation, get the results that we want, and don't end up in a mindset where we're just going to see the box being checked, but no actual delivery on the goal behind it. And I think that's going to be a real challenge. And my hope is that engineers will say, I want to be proud of the work that I'm doing, therefore I need to do X beyond the checkbox, beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and that we'll start to see more space for that.
0: So what I'm hearing in this is more regulation, but regulation doesn't always have to come from the outside, from our governments. No, regulation can come from
1: within organizations. Yeah. You know, the the work that looking back at the trustworthy computing memo that Bill Gates wrote in 2002 and, you know, some of my management actually wrote the draft of as a secure computing memo back when I was back at Microsoft, I knew the people. Um, and Bill changed it from secure to trustworthy, which I think is a really interesting shift in what we're thinking about is Bill said, if we're going to have computing be the fundamental basis of our society, it needs to be trustworthy, that we need to know that we can count on it. And I think that's a great frame. And I'm proud to have been a part of how Microsoft delivered on that for a good period of time in the 2000s. Adam wasn't there at the beginning, but he did work
0: at Microsoft during the trustworthy era. I didn't work at Microsoft. I was on the press side at ZDNet, and I would often get hate mail from loyal Microsoft people, even employees of Microsoft, who said I was out of line to criticize how Microsoft was handling researchers reporting vulnerabilities or how Microsoft tried to ignore, as we have discussed any of the vulnerabilities that they did disclose and put the blame back on the user for not using the defaults. Well, this changed in
1: part with Gates's memo. And there were a lot of people who went through very real hero's journeys as they tried to figure out what the heck do we do to help all of Microsoft to do this um, and help make that change happen. So given what we saw at Microsoft,
0: how do we say something similar to that at a Google or an Apple or an Amazon today?
1: You know, I, first, I want to say that I have friends working in security at each of those companies, and I think that the the start of the change is there, and the big questions, that, so what happened at Microsoft is we learned to do the engineering work. The big challenge for these companies is we need to fund the engineering work. We need to say it's okay for us to take 1% less revenue because we're not going to collect people's social security numbers. And so our advertising will be a little less precise because of this Uber goal that we have. Or we need to see people being pushed in that direction and so we we're moving from we know how to do it we see that we probably ought to do it but the other thing that we really need is the culture at these places to be yes we will we're going to secure that you know someone someone said that culture is what happens when there's no written rule and the question that that we really face is if if somebody says we're going to take an actually I have an example for you here i was talking to i was talking to an organization that you've heard of And they said, one of our business units went to put something in a new cloud environment that we'd never built in before. And we caught it at review. And we started making a list of all the controls we have in cloud number one that we needed to replicate into cloud number two. And it took an extra three quarters to ship took an extra nine months to get all of, and there were good business reasons they needed to go with this other environment. In your organization, if you raised your hand and said, doing this properly will take an an extra nine months, do you think that you'll be let go or promoted? It all gets back to the environment that
0: gets set. And there is some precedent in Star Wars universe for this as well.
1: Is, is that you expect to be promoted for raising your hand and pointing out the thing, the turd in the room, rather than it's going to get swept under the rug. And I think that's to your, to your question about what will it take for these other big companies to get there, is what does it take to shift their culture? And it takes the founder, it takes the leadership, It takes executives saying it over and over again and then backing it when push comes to shove in a stack rank, in a promotion discussion, unfortunately, in today's economic environment, in a layoff discussion, you know? Turns out that Anakin is not displaying good moral sense. His activities don't align with the culture we're looking for here. Um, We're sorry, but you're not going to continue your Jedi training with us. I know it's not in
0: the scope of Adam's book, but the recent Disney Plus TV series Andor is, in many ways, the way I wanted the original Star Wars films to have been. It's rich in detail, and it weaves in the social and political influences as well, much the way a security team would go up against the business engineering forces in an organization. It got me thinking about how perhaps we could say that the security-minded engineers in any organization are kind of like the Rebel Alliance going up against the empire.
1: In many cases, they are. They, and, and this has been, this was the sea change at Microsoft was in 1997 98 99 there was this set of people who were pushing and fighting and arguing that microsoft was not responding well to these problems that people found and they really were like the rebel alliance and they had folks inside the company who were trying to turn the ship. In fact, Stride, the, the, um, the mnemonic at the core of the book, was created by Lauren Confelder and Prairite Garg in 1999 at Microsoft. And they wrote a, an article, which you can now find on the internet, titled The Threats to Our Products, and they were fighting the good fight back before it was the norm at Microsoft. They said, we have to do this. But they were, they were part of what turned the tide and created a belief that if Bill made this commitment, if Bill said we were going to make this change, that we could actually achieve it. Because a lot of this security stuff is hard to engineer for. And so as a leader, if I'm going to say, I want my people to build secure code, I have to know what that means. I have to know what success looks like. I have to enable them. I'd really like to thank Adam Shustak for
0: coming on the show and talking about his new book, Threats, What Every Engineer Should Learn from Star Wars, from John Wiley and Sons. It's available on Amazon, or wherever good books can be found. And we've only scratched the surface on Adam's many contributions to the field of information security, and in particular, his work with vulnerabilities, exploits, and threats. I look forward to having more conversations with Adam on future episodes of The Hacker Mind. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. I don't want you to miss out. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon or at robertvamosi on Twitter. And tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you commercial-free by For All Secure. For the Hacker Line, I'm Robert Famosi.